you don't stop. You just barrel right through it. And you're worried about the process of the whole race. And that's what I did. I, that's truly how it felt. I would just miss a cut. Who cares? Qualify, you know, get into sectionals for the US Open. Who cares? Almost make it to the US Open. Missed it by a couple shots to Scott Harvey, who qualified in that one. Who cares? I'm, I'm working hard. I'm, I worked hard up to this point, and I'm going to go home and continue to work hard. I truly didn't care about the results. This is The Tournament Code. We appreciate you taking the time to join us, Josh. We know a little bit about where you are right now. Obviously, you have foundations, mental performance, but... Before that, as you know, we start with every guest in the same spot, which is how'd you get into the game of golf? Yeah, uh, I think like a lot of people, uh, it was my dad. He he introduced me kind of like as long as I can remember, five, six, seven years old, just occasionally going out to the golf course and, you know, whack a ball, pick it up, bring it to his ball, whack another one, chill in the golf cart, that those kind of things. And he... I don't know. I just loved it. It just felt like this time I got got to be with my dad, and because uh, he was busy working constantly, so it was it was just a great a great. Uh, it just it was like every time was just I don't know. It was like a dream every time I got to go with him. So when it was actually time to really get into it uh, at twelve years old, I was just like, man, this is all I want to do, and and it became my own thing at that point. They dropped me off the golf course, and I would do my own thing, but. As far as just simply getting into it, it was my dad and not pushing me, but just just pure love of being out there with him. It just it was everything to me. I, it was the only thing I wanted to do. So yeah, it was definitely my dad. When you were around twelve years old and you really started to start to work hard at it, was that the same time that you started playing in tournaments? Yeah, I did. I started playing tournaments in, at twelve years old just random little rinky dink things, local community, uh, or county, county stuff, city stuff. I couldn't even tell you what those tournaments were. Uh, it took me a few years to really even get into like even regional type, let alone state. It just, I just had no clue what I was doing, but yeah, 12 years old would have been when I, when I started competing and that I competing is doing a lot of work in that sentence. Cause it, it was a real struggle. But yeah, tournament-wise, yeah, that's when I started, right around 12. Tell us a little bit about that struggle as far as getting good, trying to compete, and playing good golf. Because we we know and we'll talk about like how things progress for you in the future and how you got better and played at a high level. But it sounds like there was a lot in between you and there. You weren't bored. You weren't. You didn't come out of the womb just whacking it around. No, I I was just physically completely ungifted. I I was small. I didn't hit it very far. I, I've seen pictures of myself when I was, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, 13 or something. I, some, I got a random, I saw a picture the other day and it actually looked pretty good. So I don't understand how, because I didn't really get lessons until probably 14 or 15. But I just, I was, I was clueless. I had no, no direction. It would be drop me off at the golf course and I would just chip around the chipping green because I couldn't pay for range balls. Like the seven dollars was more than my parents wanted to spend. Or I, I was twelve. I didn't have an income, so I, uh, I just had to chip and putt 
for for hours and hours from eight to five, like when while my parents were working. So I just there was zero direction, and that that was a cool foundation. You kind of hear like Scotty Scheffler's kind of foundation of where he just spent all his time chipping. That was kind of my deal. And it, and it led to me, that was kind of my, became one of my strengths, but the, the complete lack of direction and giftedness physically, it really did. It led to, it led to a kind of a lot of struggles for sure in my own game. At what point did you decide that you wanted to play college golf? I mean, at 12 years old, I decided I wanted to play pro golf, which is insane considering how I was, but it was just, I mean, it was just a random dream, but college golf, I think just became a, a a stepping stone to pro golf. At some point I realized good players play college golf. Like that's, you don't just play amateur golf forever or, or you don't jump right to pro. That's just not the progression. So probably around 14 or so I realized in the next two or three years, this is when players get recruited. You need to be playing good in tournaments. Did your parents get on board with that? Did they, you know, help you out, help you find the tournaments? How did you learn more about getting into the like higher level junior tournaments and figuring out that circuit? Yeah, my dad was heavily involved in helping me find tournaments, maybe just because he was the guy paying for him. I'm not really sure. My mom would drive me to several. They would both kind of bounce back and forth driving me. But as far as knowing what to play, my dad was not the expert. He was just, I don't, we found like some little random tour in North Carolina and latched onto it for some reason. And it was terrible. It was just like six kids from 12 to 15. And it was at the most random little weird courses that I, I still have never even like heard of to this day. They're probably still running. I don't know. And man, if I had, if I had known and kids these days have so much more access to knowledge and what to play and what counts, what colleges co- college coaches look for. But there was just zero direction. And if I had had one person say, just play in these, play in these six tournaments this summer, even if you suck at them, this will be better than sucking at a worse tournament, right? At least suck at a better tournament uh, because you'll get exposed to higher level play. It'll, you'll learn what you need to what you need to get better at, why you're so much worse than these other players. So no direction in, in what to play in. Um, that's because my dad, who was a golfer, but not a, not clued in at all was the one driving that boat. When you look back, what were, what would be some of the tournaments that you would tell yourself to play in? Oh man, that's a good question. There's more tournaments now, like more little tours and more, just more better players. But back then I would have said, I think the, so in North Carolina, there's the, there's the Carolinas golf association. And then under that, there's a Tar Heel youth golf association, and it's kind of the youth version of it. And I would play in those because they're, they're kind of city county level, but they, I would just, I would play in, in tournaments that exposed me to higher level players, more players, more different good golf courses. And it would probably be that it would be, it'd be state level run organizations that had tournaments throughout the state. So to any, any player that's maybe I'm the guy that's giving you direction, do that play in bigger tournaments, big play against better players, even though it's intimidating. That's absolutely what I would do. I wish I could talk to 
12 year old Josh for sure. I I get that. But this, despite that, you got on some colleges' radars mm. and you ended up playing in college. Tell us about that process and how you chose where you're going to go play. Yeah, man, I have no clue how I got on any college radar. I, I think I I probably had some a handful of decent finishes, but I the the way my dad and I did it, and again, it was my my dad largely driving that ship. We we said, all right, let's pick ten really good schools that are a reach, you know, Clemson and Stanford, like, come on. Never going to those, but let's pick ten that are like crazy dream schools and then 10 that are like I should I should get into these and then 10 that are like probably would be disappointed if I got into these and so we would just barrage each 10 all all 30 schools with at the time it was like packets of like a cd of my swing and like a letter like a hand typed letter that my dad and I worked on and tournament results and so I we would build these packets and mail them out to to colleges and and I, it was just it was like a little like an Etsy shop it felt like at the, if if you could extrapolate it to today and and eventually I guess two or three of those middle schools and you know six or seven of those lower schools liked what they saw I can't imagine why because at like 15 years old I found like my like scoring average or something for the tour. And I was, I was averaging like high nineties at, in at like through, through the season of when I was 15 years old. But from then until I was getting recruited, I just, I hit it hard and, and got a lot better and got into averaging mid seventies in tournaments or high, mid to high seventies. And I guess coaches ultimately I, I, I went to Appalachian state and he saw the potential and I won a tournament kind of a state level or a um, city level tournament the summer before my junior year. And I, that was it for him, I guess. So it, it didn't take much at the time for me to, I mean, it was a D one school. So I don't, I, I just can't believe that I was able to do that, but it was just work ethic. It was just straight work ethic was my process. No skill, no ability whatsoever. But it was I, I stand by that 10, 10, and 10 to this day. If I if a player is asking me what should I do, how should I communicate with schools, I tell them that. And because I think it it broadens your horizons and it, it makes you it makes you do something maybe you're a little bit uncomfortable with. And who knows? You like you get on that school's radar and you and you get way, way, way better. You've already communicated with them, you already talked with them, you're sending them emails every week. And also on the other side, work ethic getting better, getting to a place where that school even wants you or wants to pay attention to you. And that's how I went about it. But it wasn't social media or emailing. It was packets. I just can't, I can't believe that we spent that much time doing that. Yeah. I I get what you mean. When I was going through my first round of applications, I actually took a year off of school. And so I had a second round of applications, but my first round of applications, I think I applied for 17 schools or something like that. And I met with a significant portion of those schools coaches or at least kind of the ones that I had shortlisted some of them way way beyond my reach mm-hmm. some of them actually were easy easy lands and then there were some that were right at, right in the middle as far as things went and that's why I actually ended up taking another year is I needed a little bit more time to improve and progress but the, having those options was helpful for a variety of reasons as far as 
knowing where you where you could go, et cetera, and having an option. So I, I completely get that. And it puts you out there. You talk with coaches who have who are going to tell you, hey, you're not good enough. And that's a good thing to hear because it may, can make you work better, harder, and smarter. So you got to Appalachian State. Tell us a little bit about your time there and how your career progressed. Yeah. So my freshman year, I I was the first thing that comes to mind was how small I was still. I was 130 pounds and like five, eight. When I, when I started college, I was just tiny and probably hit it 230 yards. And I was just immediately exposed to how big of a difference there was between me and college players, because you go from kind of the best player in your little city or your little town, or your little village, basically in my case, to now you're at a school of 17,000 people and the best, you know, it's D1 school. So it's some of the best players in the area are going to play there and they're hitting it 280, 290. And just, I, I just got completely exposed. So from that point to my second semester, I just, I, I went to the gym as often as I could or, or got on the plan as dedicated as I could a fitness plan and eating a ton. I mean, you've heard of like the freshman 15, I put on 20 pounds. I don't know if it was all muscle, but it was, um, for the first time I was able to actually gain some weight and I think it was muscle related, but it was also the delicious cafeterias there. And, and that helped me just immediately just being a larger person, not big by any stretch. I was just able to generate some more club head speed and and that helped me. I think I qualified for some tournaments late in the first semester and then was kind of from second semester through the end of my college career, pretty, pretty much on the team, either one or two on the team or four or five in some stretches. But it was maybe that's a theme for me is I, I start. It's funny. This is bringing to mind. Maybe this is a theme or I, I jump into something and I'm really bad at it and not equipped for it and uh, don't have the talent for it. I don't, I don't even know if that's even a thing to start something with a talent for it, but to, to be able to learn quickly and say, I'm not good enough. What do I got to do to get better? And then do that thing. And that's definitely what I did in college. And it, it helped me get better quickly, but then plateaued and we can talk about that where I, I hit a plateau from basically second semester for the next eight years of not really getting much better. But for college wise, I got good enough to play on that team, which was huge for me and huge for my goals and what I wanted to do, but just never really got as good as I'd like to be. But the progression through college was, uh, was good enough and I, I got to play. So that's, that's what I was going there to do. When you got to play in those college tournaments, what were they like compared to junior tournaments you were playing? Mm. Yeah. I mean, as I said about my junior tournaments, they were nothing. They were rinky dink. They were, I played in some state level stuff that exposed me to some better players, but really I, I went from a very tiny pond to uh, a huge ocean and, you know, we would, we would primarily play, even though we were D1 school, we'd play against really small D1 schools or D2, D3, uh, tiny tournaments because our coach wasn't great at finding us good 
tournaments to play in. But w- I remember one time we went to, I don't even know how we got into this tournament. We played against like Stanford and Georgia. And I'm, I remember like Harris English was on the uh, driving range. I mean, it was, that's the one that comes to mind, but there was like six players that eventually played like were playing on the PGA tour right now. And we just got demolished. We were last by, by a lot. And, but mostly the tournaments we got to play in were small, but still big for me from where I came from. But I still recognized at the time, these are small. These are not ultimately where I want to be or what I want to play in, but they were good for, they were good for me at the time. They were, they were sufficient for what I needed to do in my progression. So, you know, Harris English is there a lot of good guys there. That's your first like exposure to a lot of the big time. Tell us a, what you learned from that, but B after that, tell us a little bit about that plateau. Cause you also won some events in college. So a plateau might not have looked like a plateau does for everybody. Sure. Yeah. That is, that is a little unfair to say it. It, it was, I think I got good enough pretty quickly for my, my college goals. And, and that good enough meant I was one or two on the team and I was, I was able to go low at times and shoot in the mid sixties, which was uh, because we were playing smaller events and we weren't playing always against the Harris Englishes and the Stanfords and the Georges and whatever. I was, I was able to play good enough to compete and be good on our team and, and win a couple tournaments in college because they were kind of smaller. If, if we had always played against the Stanfords and Georges, I, I would have struggled a lot and I would have, I'm, even if I could shoot those scores, we were, we were playing on, that was a more difficult golf course against better players. And I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to play that good. So I think it was a plateau, but on that plateau was good enough against smaller fields and easier competition, but it was a plateau whether it was better than most plateau it was it was a i stalled out and didn't get much better from the end of freshman year to the to senior year you mentioned earlier that you always dreamed of playing on the PGA tour and you continued to play competitively after college but you didn't turn professional like most college players would so just talk about what your competitive golf looked like uh, right out of college yeah so i I had it written down everywhere. I think I had it on my wall, like turn pro May 2013, which is the month that I was going to graduate and ultimately didn't, as you said. And it, it was, it was really disheartening. I mean, obviously, you know, as you're getting to May 2013, that this isn't going to happen. And that, that was, it was very disheartening. It, it felt like kind of a confirmation of, what I believed about myself, because I generally had a had a low view of myself. I I really I didn't have a lot of self belief. It sounds like I did with work ethic and whatever, and sending ten, uh, you know, reach schools for college, and I, but I I really didn't have much belief in myself, and that could have come from that. Like I'm never quite as good as anyone else. And I have to work hard in order to be as good as someone else. But the tournaments I played, I I think I finally realized I'm good enough to play in state level stuff. I, you know, I did U.S. Open qualifiers, U.S.A.M. qualifiers, 
all the USGA stuff that I could get in, you know, qualify, try to qualify for all the state level stuff. So I finally found the tournament level that I would recommend everyone doing and would still do to this day. But I was still on that plateau and was not able to perform in those at all. So it, there was no, like I continued success from college, finally finding my footing for the next four years. I stayed on that plateau, stayed struggling, stayed on a, just a really difficult struggle for four more years. And that was ultimately because I didn't work with an instructor. I I didn't have an instructor from freshman year of college to 25 years old. So like eight straight years, I didn't work with anybody. I didn't have that guide to tell me what to play in. I didn't have that guide, why you're struggling, why, what you need to work on. And so I would play in these tournaments and just not do good. Miss cuts, never qualify. I think the first state level thing I qualified for was probably two years out of college. You could, you could check, check the tape on if that's true or not, but that's how it feels. So I played in bigger stuff, but just struggled, continued to struggle. Tell us about getting the coach and what that did for your game and how you found your coach. Yeah. So this was the real turning point in my life. I, it's, I don't think that's too crazy to say at, in 2016, August, I I guess earlier in 2016, I joined a country club here in North Carolina that was pushed on me from a friend who was there and he was going to get a discount if I, if I went there. But he talked me into it of like, this is, you need to be playing at a better course. You need to be playing against better players routinely. So I joined there and, you know, now I'm just playing a more difficult course with my bad golf game. So now I'm just struggling all the time. And eventually, after being there long enough and losing to enough people, I said, this is not working. I'm, I'm struggling too long, like that I'm sucking. I'm, I'm not getting better. I'm, I'm working on my technique, just completely self-diagnosing myself and not, not knowing what to do. So I, said, I just threw in the towel and said, I'm going to find someone and I'm going to do what they say. And I don't even care how long it takes or whatever. So I... I looked I looked at the landscape of like where I wanted to get to and I wanted to I wanted to become a really good amateur before turning pro and I looked at kind of the scene in North Carolina and Scott Harvey who is one of the best mid-ams in the country and he had just won the US Mid-Am in 14 or 15 or something like that and he he's uh, his instructor is uh Robert Linville at Precision Golf School in Greensboro and I grew up 20 minutes from there and me and Scott are both from the same little town. And I said, that's where I want to be. I want to be as good as him. And I, so I'm going to go to his instructor. I'm gonna, so I went to Robert and, and I said, Robert, whatever you want to charge me, whatever you want to tell me to do, whatever plan you put me on, I will do it. And I don't care how long it takes. And he said, okay, let's go. And he he was just kind of starting a new coaching program that he was giving his players. And he, he said, okay, do these practices, spend this much time doing this and, you know, journal every day, do this, do some mental practices and stuff. And I just straight up did them. I didn't care. And I, I didn't care how boring it was. And I just did that for eight to 10 hours a day because I wasn't, I was living at my parents' house and I was working at a golf course a couple days a week so I had all the time in the world and I, I just went at it really, really hard from 
August 2016 to October 2017. So for that kind of September, October, 14 month stretch, I just, I went at it as hard as probably anyone has ever gone at it. Uh, and with as much discipline and intentionality as, as anyone could go at it. So it was, it was a throw in the towel moment. It was a, I don't care. Uh, I'm, I'm going to do this and I don't care how difficult it is. Uh, just full on process, not results. What did one of those eight, eight to 10 hour days look like? Oh man, I, it's funny. I, I, We'll dig it back up every once in a while. I've I've got it written down in some places. I've got it on my old Google Calendar where I would block out each basically each minute. So I would show up to the golf course and go put on some sunscreen. I always made made a priority of that. And then I'd go out to the putting green and no, I wouldn't go to the putting green. I would start with the most physically intense thing first. So when I was freshest, well, I can't miss this. I would go to the gym at like five AM. I'd wake up at five AM, eat a banana, go to the gym from five to six or six to seven and then get home, eat a breakfast, then get to the golf course, put on sunscreen, go to the range and start working on my technique. So Robert and I, we, we realized, or he, he realized from research of all of his players that certain percentages of your time that you should spend on block random challenge variable type practice, and then driving needs to be this much approach, putting, chipping. And so I would, before the next day, I would just straight up plan my time like that. I would do the math. Like it would be 17 minutes of driving, 23 minutes of approach. And th- this could be a little bit psychotic to some people, but that's how I went about it. I was detailed like that. So I would go to the range and spend two or three hours going through whatever I had planned to do. And then I'd go over to the chipping green and then go to the putting green. And that was probably until one or two in the afternoon. And then I'd go walk nine or, or 18. And then probably finish off with some putting after that until it was dark, you know, seven, eight o'clock and then go home and collapse into bed and then wake up and do it again. And probably six days a week, I would do that. Sometimes seven, uh, the course was closed on Monday. So I would sneak out, man, walk nine or 18, but really six or seven days a week. That's, it was that. That's a lot of stuff to do and it's a hard, hard thing to do, but it's also definitely a way to get better as far Mm. as like making sure one of the things that we've talked about, I'm interested to get your take because I spent days similar to that during my gap year when I was trying to get better as far as the time spent. And one thing I realized as I got older, sometimes you just need to spend the time. That's like sometimes the only thing that you can do is spend the time because that's what it takes to get better. What I realized as I've gotten older uh, is now that, all right, I have a little bit more experience under my belt, et cetera. I try to do things as efficiently as possible. And a lot of times, like Mm. after about X amount of hours, I can be like, all right, I could squeeze what was this amount of hours into this amount of hours. Tell us a little bit, one, about breaking up that practice into minutes, because I think that's a really good framework to do, because otherwise it's easy to get stuck on the range, like trying to get that one last good feeling, chasing that one last dopamine hit. And then tell us Mm. also about spending that much time, what you learned spending all that time on the course and the range. Yeah. And, and like I said, that's, that is a psychotic schedule and probably completely unrelatable to 98% of golfers, but the breaking up time was essential. I would, I was so into the process and didn't care about the result that I would not set a timer, but I would say, all right, at, you know, 8:45, I'm done doing this, whether it was the last shot was terrible or 
the last shot was great. I wouldn't, I didn't, I wouldn't finish on a good shot. I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel the need to do that. So I would, um, I think it was essential to break up that time so that I knew I was practicing everything and getting and hitting all the priorities and, and making sure that I was doing everything Robert told me to do. And, and that looking back could be a little bit unhealthy because I, I didn't necessarily own it. I, I really said, I don't like, as, as kind of the theme goes up to that point in my life, I, I had no direction. I had no guide. My, my only guide was my dad who didn't know what he was talking about, uh, on a golf performance type of, uh, he knew what he was talking about with other things. Dad, if you're listening, you know what you're talking about, but on a golf performance and college, you know, seeking, you know, tournament golf level, he didn't know. So finally I found a guide and maybe a golf dad I never had kind of thing. So I will do whatever you say and I don't care how difficult it is. And that's not relatable to other people. The relatable version would be, you know, if you got three hours this week, break it up into time so that you know you're using your three hours well. It's so easy to take, to spend two and a half hours of that time whacking eight irons until you hit an eight iron good. And that's, like you said, truncating that time into quality is is way more valuable. I, I've I've learned that now. I was the thing that I was doing was I was doing eight to ten hours and it was quality. It wasn't just quantity. And that was that's what made me get so much better in those 14 months. I wasn't just whacking balls. I was I was doing it in a quality way. So the relatability was Josh did it in a quality way and Josh's way wasn't perfect and not everyone does it that way. But if you can take your time, break it up in, into quality minutes and be intentional about the way you do it, that's the relatable part of it. And I was, I, I, I would do it again. I would do it that, I would do it that way again, just with less time. Were you playing in any tournaments during these 14 months? And what, what were those tournaments? Yeah. So I was, I was continuing to play that same state level you know, national level type schedule, all the Carolinas Golf Association stuff, all the USAM, US Open qualifiers. I, this is a little hack that I, that I always did right about this time of year. I don't like, uh, I don't know when this will go out, but it's right around when uh, local qualifiers are for the US Open. And I would always go up to New York or Boston or, or Massachusetts when they're coming right out of off season. And I'd go up there and, you know, I've been, hitting it eight or 10 hours a day since uh, last November. So they were uh, what I thought was rusty. And I went up there and I, I got into sectionals twice doing that. And I never qualified for the USAM, but I, I did all those qualifiers and, and played those state level events and started playing good. And ultimately, I towards the end of that 14 months in the summer of 2017, I I won a city level called the Triad Amateur and then won what I would call a state level, maybe even kind of regional, out bigger than state, the Carolinas Open, which is a pro slash amateur event. And then two months later I I finished runner up in the US Mid Am. So I it it was it was definitely a time of hardcore quick improvement. And, and I was able to transfer what I was practicing onto the course 
but I played that same schedule. I always played that same, you know, state and national level qualifiers, that, that kind of schedule. And I, I was just better. I wasn't on that plateau anymore. And I was able to actually play better in those events. What did it feel like to finally have some success after all that hard work? Uh, I, um, I didn't care about the success, which sounds crazy. I, I was so in, in my own bubble about my process and that's a super tired phrase. Uh, it's super cliche, but I, I really was like, I, I could, there was no end. There was no finish line. It was, I'm going to continue to work as hard as I can for as long as I can. And tournaments were truly just lily pads on that pond uh, to the other side. And I didn't know what that other side was. I guess it was playing on the PGA tour or something or hall of fame or something, you know, way, way, way down. And, but it was just lily pads. So each one was okay. Or just checkpoints on a, in a marathon. You don't, you don't stop at a, at a checkpoint in a marathon or I probably would and puke, but you don't stop at that checkpoint and say, wow, this feels great. This mile I can't believe I made it a mile. I can't believe I made it two miles. You just barrel right through it and you're worried about the process of the whole race. And that's what I did. I That's truly how it felt. I would just miss a cut. Who cares? Qualify, you know, get into sectionals for the US Open. Who cares? Almost make it to the US Open. Missed it by a couple shots to Scott Harvey who qualified in that one. Who cares? I'm I'm working hard. I'm I worked hard up to this point and I'm going to go home and continue to work hard. I truly didn't care about the results. Was it hard to not care about the results when, you know, you keep winning all those matches in the U.S. Mid-Am and you finally get to a match where the winner gets a master's exemption and a U.S. Open exemption? So was it hard to just focus on the process or did you let yourself think about that in the moment? I let myself think about that in the moment. Uh, after it was like the the second nine of the semifinal match i i can look back i've got my stats book still i on like hole 12 i stopped taking my psychotic amount of stats and i remember the moment being like i'm tired of doing these stats and i'm i've been doing these for 14 straight months I just want to enjoy this moment. Like I'm finally really seeing potential, seeing my actual potential come into play. And I just want to enjoy this moment. And I guess across those 14 months, that'd be like my one regret of, I, I thought I was making a good decision where I want to be in this moment. I want to be present here, but taking my stats was my way of being present in that moment. So abandoning that in the middle of the biggest moment was me finally losing sight of my those checkpoints and those um just barreling through and and that kind of who cares how i play and it i think it i mean in that final i don't think anyone could have beat matt parziali he he beat me eight and six he I shot 69 in the first 18 and was like six down or something crazy. So there was no beating him that day, but I, I truly wish I could redo that. If there's a, a regret about my amateur career, it would be that. Just don't stop taking your stats. Don't lose sight of your process. Stick with it. Don't, don't abandon what got you here. So yeah, I finally let myself enjoy the result and it, it led to me 
you know, maybe losing. I don't know. But yeah, with the Masters and the US Open exemptions on the line, I didn't sleep very good that night before. I I really I got in my head about it and and I was exhausted. It was like nine straight days of walking 36 holes or something. I was just completely physically gassed. So that mixed with the abandoning the process, I I didn't stand a chance in that final. I I understand that and Something interesting there. I want to talk in a little bit about your work as far as foundations, mental performance, and other stuff like that. But before before we get there, and I want to spend mm. a good bit of time there, before we get there, I want to talk about the journaling and the stats that you kept. Tell us about what your journals looked like, what stats you were keeping, like the psychotic mm. stats you kept as you were going along during the round. Why don't you tell us about your process around that? And then maybe how your thinking has evolved or if your thinking is the same and just the process and the process behind why you do what you do. Yeah. So the, the psychotic stats I took were basically shot level detail strokes gained. So I would, you know, first tee, did I hit the fairway or did I not? Did I miss it left or right? And then was it a, if I missed the fairway, was it a good lie or a bad lie in the rough? We would use shot by shot by Peter Sanders, which I think he invented strokes gained. I know a lot of people think it's Mark Brody, but I think it was Peter Sanders. I don't know. I haven't really looked into it, but he, he now works for uh swing you Peter Sanders does. But at the time it was shot by shot, this really janky little app that it looks like he just made on his computer, but it was, did I hit the fairway? Did I miss it? Was it a good lie? Bad lie? Did I hit the green? If so, how far, how far was your first putt? Or how far was your chip? How long was your approach shot? Just every shot level detail. Everything was just tracked to to the exact yardage. You know, pacing stuff off constantly. Always, always figuring out how far I was. And I would I would chart that for every single nine holes I played. Casual playing with guys at the club, tournaments, and just constantly taking those detailed stats and. And I would use, we would we would go back to the drawing board and say, okay, based on these stats, what do you need to work on? And we would tweak our percentages of um, driving approach, short game, putting, and say, okay, driving needs a little more time, or you, you're struggling with your long irons. What's going on there in your swing? Um, so I would use those stats for that, and that was my process—just completely boring, psychotic process for 14 straight months, and until the the semifinal, the US Mid Am. So it was, uh, it was really, I think valuable though, because like people can take from that and say they might not need that crazy amount of detail, but just the generic, don't just play, you know, learn from every round you play in, uh, you don't have to pace off every single putt, but at least have an idea. This is about a 30 footer. This is about a 20 footer. I need to, you know, I, I, I average 2.7 putts from 30 feet or whatever. That must, that's something I need to work on or, uh, generically 150 to 200, I struggle and, and you can get some pretty generic stats, but not just whacking the ball. That's, that's probably the theme of my life where it's be intentional about everything you do. Don't just go through the motions. So that was my process for those 14 months. Intentionality can fix a lot of things and can help solve a lot of problems where they where hard work would take a whole lot more you it would take a whole lot more hard work to solve that problem yep. than just spending a little bit of time finding the right solution i think 
that that applies in life, applies in golf. It applies about everywhere. Uh, I think Abraham Lincoln's quote was something around the lines, if you're going to uh, chop down a tree, the first thing you got to do is sharpen your axe. You don't just start cho- yep. chopping the tree. You sharpen the axe and you get yourself a really sharp axe to grind it down. So that, yeah, and, and one of my, um, sorry to interrupt, one of my, one of my favorite phrases is many blows fell a large tree. Uh, and it's got kind of weird old English to it, but it, the, the idea is it's, it's really easy to go out and say, I want this tree to come down right now and it needs to come down today. And you're going to go out there and whack, whack it and, and get exhausted after 10 hours. But a better mentality is, okay, today I'm going to put in an hour of chopping and it's going to be my freshest chopping and, and then I'm going to stop and I'm going to come back tomorrow refreshed and really quality strikes and as opposed to chopping all over the place because you're exhausted and you're getting weaker and then the next day you're burnt out and then you can't come back for a week because you're sore. Instead, show up with a plan and do it in a quality way and that patient approach will probably lead to the tree coming down quicker, sooner, and you'll have enjoyed it more. You won't have burnt yourself out. You won't have been in pain constantly. And that's a, that analogy is, is too confusing and can go forever. But the, the golf analogy is I'm going to show up and do this in a quality way. And I'm going to set my intentional amount of time and I'm going to stop when I've predetermined that I'm going to stop and then I'm going to come back tomorrow refreshed and do it well. And, and that's absolutely how I, how I went about it. Intentionality is important and mentality is important. Let's talk about mentality in the context context of foundations mental performance. You run that, you started that. Tell us about that, how you got into that, and then also tell us a little bit about the mental golf show. Yeah. Uh I th- thank you for, for introducing that. Yeah, I it was born out of that US Mid Am. It that was that was a clear point in my life where during that tournament, I realized I, this isn't what I want to do anymore. Like in, while I'm in the hotel between those, you know, long, crazy long days, exhausted, I'm, I'm FaceTiming with my, at the point at that time, girlfriend, now wife, who I had met three months earlier. I, I realized this is not what I want to do. I don't want to be traveling. I don't want to be in a hotel. I don't want to be in some weird city in South Carolina playing some mini tour event. Kind of like you said, Cooper, it's just not, it's not the grind that I want to do. I don't want to do this anymore. I like the practice, but I don't want this travel. So I put the clubs away. Like I, I was exempt into the next year's USAM at Pebble beach and didn't play golf hardly until between October to whenever August that when that USAM was, and that was just born out of like, I don't, I just don't care to do this anymore. I'd I'd rather find I, I have other areas in my life that I like more. So during that time I was just kind of lost, I guess you could say. I didn't work. I just spent all my time with my girlfriend. And eventually I said, I should probably work. I should probably get a job. So I, I went back to Robert, my instructor, Robert Limville, and said, What do you think I should do? Like you're you're my kind of my dad at this point, my golf dad. What do you think I would be good at? What do you think I could do? And he said, the way that you improve mentally, I, I think you could help other players do that. So 
kind of in 2019, May 2019 is what I consider to be kind of the start. I I said, this is this is what I'm going to do now. So he started me with some of his players. You work with these, you know, five players just to start. And it started there and slowly grew. I would I would work with some of his players at Precision Golf School and eventually got referred to someone else, a new player. And I kind of made it. I said, OK, this is my own player for the first time and eventually gave my myself a business foundations, mental performance and and said, this is this is what I'm going to do. Like, this is what I know best. Uh, kind of like you said, Daniel, like this is what we know. Golf is what we know. So I'm going to pursue this and and give back to the game that I took from it, what felt like took from for years. And, and, and out of that came the mental golf show, the the podcast that I've run from since about the same time I said this, you know, this medium is good for the mental game, golf psychology. And uh, this would, this would help me get my message out to people. This would, this would help me get kind of reps on um, I remember your conversation with John Eads. He said, this is a way of getting reps. This is a way of me sharpening my, my ax. And so I, I did it like that. And, and maybe eventually it will lead to someone hearing it and wanting to work with me. So it was an outreach tool and a improvement tool for myself. So the two foundations, mental performance and mental golf show were, became my outlets back, back into golf. And yeah, I've been going, uh, I guess, about four years now doing doing the same thing. What are some of the fun- mental fundamental skills that you work on with your players? Yeah, they're foundational skills, Cooper, <laughs> since the business is called Foundations Mental Performance. No, uh, fundamental skills are definitely, they've changed. They've evolved over the time. At, at the time, I didn't know what I was talking about. I just had my own experience to go on, but I've learned a lot since then. I've, I've dove into, you know, psychology, science, and have talked to a lot of good good people and and smart people, people with doctorates and you know authors and and just people that are way smarter than me and way further ahead than me. And I I've um, I've learned at the time it would have said just just trust your process, just be in the present, just this, just that. But now some some foundational skills that I would teach players would be mindfulness, intentionality, which is something we talked about a lot today, and acceptance of any outcome and acceptance of any outcome would probably have been the thing that I would have talked about back then too. I just wouldn't know why on a, you know, on a neurological level or on a psychological level, but that was something I went hardcore into in my own playing career was I don't, I don't care about the outcome or I care, care's the wrong word. I, I'm not tied to the outcome. It's the outcome is not personal. It's, it's just a learning. It's, it's, it's just information for me to learn from. It's not, it doesn't define who I am as a person. So it's gotta be mindfulness, acceptance, intentionality, those, those kind of things. And each one deserves 18 podcasts, but, uh, it would be those three is where I would, I would tend to start with players and get them going on those. Not defining who you are, I think is the Mm. best way to describe that that caring mentality because we do like we want good things to happen but whether those good things happen or not we aren't our golf shots and it's funny you were you said that because i was thinking exactly what you're saying right there except it was thinking from incredibles 2 and dash says it defines who i am uh, except 
in this case, it's got to be the exact opposite. It doesn't define who we are. So you hit that snap hook, just like it, it, it is what it is. Like you want it to be good. It wasn't. You kind of got to let those things go. So I think defining who we are is a great way to frame that saying like, we won't, we won't let that happen with these golf shots. Tell us a little bit about the process of not letting golf shots define you and how you get your students, especially I, you were into journaling. I imagine maybe your students might do some journaling. What are, how do you have them journal? What sort of prompts are you using? How do you get them into that? Cause journaling can be hard, especially like high school. Like you try to, I look back at one of my old journals for golf and it's bad. Like there's no, no two ways around it. Like I write down a few things, not much you can learn from. And to me, it feels like sometimes some guys can write for days. Some guys need prompts. How do you help them record that and find things that are going to be useful for them to go back to? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not as, I don't push journaling as much as I would have right out the gate. I used to, but if I, if there is a value to journaling, it's, it's simply from a self-awareness standpoint where you, you're not just going through the motions. You're, you're able to notice what, what your tendencies are, what you tend to struggle with, what you, what you fear, what, where your tensions are coming from. So journaling would be more of a, you're going to journal after this round. So pay attention between now and when you're going to journal. So, so you have something to journal about. It would be more of a, the prompt would be, what were you feeling throughout that round? And, and so, so back when I was playing, I would, and, and maybe this is a cool prompt for people if they're, if they're looking for something to, to, to do, I would do something called a three and one. And this was Robert's idea from a book that he read where you would write down three good things that happened, one thing that you could improve on and specifically how you could improve it. And I did that. I don't know how many days there are between August 2016 and October 2017, but I did it for probably 75% of those days. Every morning I would write about the previous day. And for me at the time, because I had kind of a low self-belief, I was able to show myself enough times, you're good. Like you're good at golf. You look at these three things you did, whether it was a, you worked hard and you went to the golf course and went to bed, like could be super simple or like you really committed to all your shots during that round of golf. So it could be those, or it could be, how did I feel? What, when I, when I got to that hole where I, I, you know, I have a slice and there's water all up the right or out of bounds left or something. What was I feeling in that moment? What, if I was feeling tense, where was that tension coming from? Oh, it was a fear of going right and the need to hit the shot perfect. And those are the kind of things I would have people journal about now, but don't need to be journaled about it. If you, if, if there's anything I've learned, it's that your mind journals for you. Your, your brain is capable of recording information, whether you know it or not. And something I learned really recently is the best thing to do after a round of golf is do nothing for like 10 minutes and let your brain run through what just happened. And the chemicals in your brain will just encode that encode it into memory. And so it's, it's almost like journaling would distract your brain from even doing that. So that that's 
In fact, that the same guy, Raymond Pryor is his name. I had him on the podcast. I've had him on several times. Super smart guy. He, he said the best thing to do after like a lesson is to like take a nap, take a 30 minute hour nap, because that's when your brain commits things to memory the best. And so journaling is cool only as a, as a means to an end, not, not the end itself. Interesting. It sounds like what you're saying there, maybe I'll reframe it and you tell me if this sounds right. Like your brain does a great job of encoding information and journaling is really a tool. If your brain is encoding information that would be detrimental to your performance, journaling is the tool that you would use to recode that information to help give yourself a positive stimulus. That sound right? Sure. And, and also not, not needing to come away with a positive always it's it's okay to and in fact the 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 labeling things as positive and negative tends to make those things personal and wrapping things in emotion tends to bring them closer to you rather than help you detach yourself from those things so journaling could almost harm you in a way where if you're if you're doing it so that everything is glossed over everything looks shiny and nice and i only talk about the good things you know i write down every good shot i hit that can distract from and actually tell your brain because your brain knows negative things happen so if all you tell it is positive things you're you're telling your brain there's something wrong with negative things you're you're subtly subconsciously telling your brain negative things are bad because you're you're trying to distract yourself from negative things. As long as you are not accepting of negative things, your brain says, oh, negative things are bad. We must avoid them stronger in the future. And the next time you're in that situation, you're you go even stronger into that fight or flight or freeze mode and say, whatever I can do to not make this negative thing happen, I'm going to do. Because I've been taught that negative things are bad through the seemingly helpful thing of focusing on the positives. So I'm sure there's value to seeing positives, but it would be more valuable to say I can negative and positive things are just things. They're just events that are happening and, and I can handle either of them the same. That's perfect. I think that's very good framing and I appreciate you clarifying that mm. for us. I think, We've covered a lot of stuff, and I think there's more sometime in the future that we want to cover. But for now, I think it's a good time to ask you our last question. And for you, it's going to be two parts. And mm. one, it's going to be, if you go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself just one thing, what would that one thing be? We ask that to every guest. And then second, if you could tell a junior golfer just one thing, what would that one thing be? Uh, yeah, it would be, oh man, it would pro <sighs> I did a lot of right things. I did a lot of things well. I was I was intentional with my time. I just didn't know where to point my intentionality and where to point my the the quality work ethic. I, I think I would I would tell I would I would say play in these bigger tournaments, like play in these other events. Uh, and that's boring. That's not very philosophical. Uh, I, that's I don't even know if someone could learn from it that. Doesn't now. Have to be. It, it's whatever's <laughs> yeah. truth. Yeah, so I, I think that's what I would tell myself. Um, but now what I would tell a player and what I get to tell players on a routine basis now is don't go through the motions. Don't 
don't go through things mindlessly. Don't mindlessly knee jerk react to things. When you, when you encounter something, be more mindful about it, be more thoughtful about it. And don't when to, to that conversation we just had, when something negative happens, it's, um, it's just something that happened. And in the future, when you're in that same situation and you feel that tension, where is that tension coming from? What are you afraid of? It would just be, be more thoughtful. Uh, if I could put a few words on it, be more thoughtful about what you're doing and your inner experience as you go through a round of golf or practice or life. Brilliant. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to join us. If people want to find you on social media, find your website, reach out to you, work with you, et cetera, where can they find you? Yeah. So you could, uh, on, on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. I don't post a ton to, I, I spend most of my time on Twitter. It's Josh Luke Nichols uh, on all of those. Of course, go check out the mental golf show podcast. It's on Apple. It's uh, right after you're done listening to the tournament code, head over to the mental golf show. Uh, it's it, we've got some good guests and some good some good info. You can follow the mental golf show on all those places. If you if you want to learn more about me and and working one on one with me on golf psychology, you could go to joshnicholsgolf.com. Um, that'll bring you to to where you can learn more. Yeah, yeah. Go go find go find some good information. Don't don't stick with the cliches that you've always heard. There's there's good information out there. Awesome. Be sure to give Josh a follow and check out the Mental Golf Show. I know I've enjoyed it. And then if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please subscribe and leave us a rating. And if you're listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. This helps us get our message out to more people. And then also leave a few comments. That way I'm not having to only deal with the one annoying guy in the comments who's trying to refute everything I'm saying. And then if you're listening to us or trying to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at the tournament code and on Twitter at tournament code. As always, we appreciate you taking the time to join us and dive in deeper to what it takes to play elite tournament golf. 